Uh, we're reading from Revelations 2, uh, 1 to 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I, do, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do, not, and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, uh, Femke, for that. Um, uh, before we jump in, I um, want to ask a friend of mine, uh, Mr. Keith Moore, uh, if he can uh, come join me up here. Come on, my man. Um, Mr. Moore has been serving faithfully here at Minor uh, Elementary, uh, I don't know, for like 100 200 years, I think, you've been here. Yeah, there you go, 17 years. Um, and uh, he arri- he's been serving our church for the past four, since we've, uh, uh, three or four since we've been here. So, um, and uh, he's become a friend. He's invited us into uh, his, uh, the rhythms of his family and celebrated uh, you know, his son's birthday and uh, 50 years for his wife. And just that, just, so we've we become good friends. We've uh, gone to boxing matches uh, together yeah. at Stadium Armory. And I mean, we've just done a lot. Today's actually his birthday. So today? Yeah. Today's his birthday. Yeah. Man, we're grateful for you, man. Just got a little card. Thank God. Yeah. Appreciate you, man. Yeah, man, let me pray for you and uh, for your family, man, in celebration. God, uh, we're grateful for uh, this man and the ways that uh, he has uh, served uh, this community and the ways that he served these uh, children that come in and out of here uh, every day for the past several years, God. And Lord, uh, we pray for uh, prayers of thanksgiving for the ways that he served our church, Lord. That's not lost on you, and we know that you delight over him. So we pray over, uh, pray over him today as uh, he and his family celebrate uh, his life and uh, just pray that it, that it is a great celebration. I pray, uh, I don't know what uh, Miss Vicky's cooking for him tonight, but I pray it's good. And uh, we're just really grateful for this man, God. Thank you for uh, letting our lives um, uh, be intertwined as long as they have. And I uh, pray for many more in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah, man. There you go. Oh, that's a good man right there. I just want you all to know. Um, we, uh, we're in a series uh, where we're walking through uh, the book of Revelation. So if this is your first time here, welcome. We've been <laughs> studying the apocalypse. Um, I want to just kind of jump right in because uh, there's several things that I want us to cover. Um, l- let me start this way. Perhaps I think one of the most famous contemporary artists, uh, and certainly one of the most famous graffiti artists uh, in the world today, uh, is a man named Banksy. Anybody familiar with his, his work or pieces? Yes, several of you. Banksy, um, is, uh, he's an anonymous or sort of pseudo-anonymous graffiti artist that um, emerged in the city of Bristol uh, in England, uh, began in the 1990s, and his work has shown up in countries uh, really around the world. Even uh, while his identity remains a bit obscure, his work is incredibly famous. Um, earlier this year in February, 
uh, I traveled uh, to Israel, to Palestine, with uh, a handful of folks from, uh, from uh, Christ City here, some folks from uh, the District Church in Columbia Heights, and then also NCC. And uh, while I was there, there are a few spots where Banksy has um, uh, painted uh, murals, graffiti murals, uh, there on the West Bank in Palestine. And often his, uh, his art has strong political undertones. There were two pieces that I was actually able to see uh, while I was there. Both of them are in Bethlehem, the ones that I saw. They're in Bethlehem in, the birth, in Jesus' birthplace. Um, uh, the first image is of a protester, and he's about to hurl uh, a bouquet of flowers. Um, this is, there's a long-standing, in case you somehow have, don't know this, there's a long-standing conflict uh, going on in Israel between Israel and Palestine. <laughs> I probably should have said that a little easier than I just did. Um, <laughs> stick to your notes, Watson. <laughs> um, uh, following the... <laughs> goodness gracious, I'm on page one. Like <laughs> um, so the, 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 there's just a, this uh, ongoing conflict between the nation of Israel and the dislocation of the Palestinian uh, people from the land. And it has spurred no small amount of violent conflicts. And this image of a masked protester um, is one that's not uncommon in the region. But um, often they're displayed or shown throwing rocks or Molotov cocktails. But Banksy, he seizes upon that image and then he refashions it. He remakes it into an image not of violence but of peace and hope. And the thing is, it, what he's doing, it's the juxtaposition of uh, these two things that don't seem to quite go together, but it also sort of stirs in us something when we view it. We see this sort of possibility that's there. This image is actually painted on the side of a gas station that's just down the street from Bethlehem Bible College. Another image that was around the corner from our hotel, um, it's on actually a busier street there in Bethlehem. Um, is uh, it's on a giant, uh, it's right across from a giant wall that separates Israel from Palestine. It's the image um, of a dove, an image that is most commonly used to display peace. Yet in this case, it's a dove that's wearing a flak jacket and has a bulletproof, uh, a bulletproof vest with a target on it. And again, it's the collision of these, of these images um, uh, one of war and one of peace that are intermingled, and it arrests the viewer. It stirs both hope and it also for hope for peace, and it also stirs the sorrow of the reality of what's happening there, because both of them are put on display. And the thing is about these two images and so many others of Banksy's works uh, is that the context in which the image is painted is also important to his work as well. Banksy is painting. He's painting on on public. Sp- places and spaces. He's painting on walls, many of which are riddled uh, with the signs of war. They have bullet holes in them. And he's painting in places that are right next to armaments. Some of his art is actually right across from a watchtower out of which uh, guns are pointed. And it's in the context that he's painting. He's creating art. He's creating these things of beauty. But his art is doing two things simultaneously. First, he's poignantly pointing to the, to the heartbreak and to the reality of conflict that's all around. It's, it's pointing to the protests and to the violence and to the death that's there. And at the same time, he is stirring sober-minded hope that peace, although it's elusive, peace is possible. Our peace symbols, they can fly even if they need to be protected. And our protests, they can happen even if those things in our hands are symbols of love. And so in many ways, Banksy is stirring a prophetic witness 
of two things at once. One, the way things are. He's pointing out the way things are. He's, he's forthtelling. He is telling truthfully. But he's also foretelling about the way that things can be. Yet he's doing so in this creative and artistic dimension that captivates us. I think in some ways, the, in many ways, the book of Revelation is doing something quite similar and in similar ways. The book of Revelation is written as a letter to churches, but it's also an exercise in some of the most brilliant and terrifying imagery uh, that we can find. Revelation is both a letter and it's a song. It's both writing and art, and it's what makes it a challenge to understand. Uh, Justin mentioned uh, this in his sermon last week, but it bears repeating again. The book of Revelation has as its central purpose to stir a prophetic witness of what is and what will be. I'll say that again, that, that the book of Revelation is intended to stir a prophetic witness both of what is, but then also the possibility of what could be. And the main hope, the main point of Revelation is hope that's found in Jesus. It is uh, to be prophetic, both uh, in its forthtelling sense of the way that things are. This is how things are now, and yes, they're hard and bad and tragic, but this is how we live with hope in the midst of the tragic now that we find ourselves in. But it's also to be prophetic in the foretelling sense. This is how things will be in the future because things won't always be the way they are now. God is still in control and he is still at work even when we can't see him working. Revelation is also to be a witness. It is to be a witness, meaning that it is to be a trusted word. That's what a witness is. In chapter 3 of Revelation, Jesus will call himself. He'll, he says, I am the faithful and true witness, meaning uh, to serve as a reminder of the things that Jesus has said. He said, you're my children. I will never leave you or forsake you. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I will return. All of these things that Jesus said, they can be trusted because he's the faithful and true witness. The words of a witness can be trusted. In the opening lines of Revelation, there's a hint to this backward and forward-looking nature of Revelation. Jesus tells John the Revelator in verse uh, 19 of chapter 1, Write, therefore, what you have seen in the past, what is now, and what will take place later. Some commentators will say that this, that this verse, actually, uh, of 119 is, is sort of the pivotal verse of it. It kind of helps guide us through the rest of the book. As John is writing, both of the things that he has seen, what he sees now, and then what will take place later. And this is what Revelation is intended to be and to do. A prophetic foretelling and foretelling witness. True statements that can be trusted of how God is working in the midst of hardship and what his salvation will look like and how to live faithfully in the midst of it all. And the main point, again, of Revelation, the purpose of its writing and its circulating throughout Asia Minor is chiefly one of hope found in Jesus. The churches which are immediately addressed in Revelation, they have been experiencing uh, different amounts of persecution leading up to the writing of Revelation. Some of the Roman emperors are engaging in terrible tortures of Christians. The emperor Nero was just a, cr a crazy man, if I can use that word, words. I did use them. He would, he would take Christians, he would take Christians and dip them in tar, sit them on stakes, and then light them on fire to serve as torches for his elaborate parties. Nero would set the city of Rome on fire. 
and burn much of the city and then circulate false conspiracy um, that uh, it was Christians who had burned Rome, leading to the mass beating and killing of Christians in the empire. Not all cities were experiencing this, but enough of them that it was putting the Christian community throughout the empire in a tremendous concern for their lives and their well-being. And into this context of empire occupation and oppression, John writes that Christ is our hope. Hope in the form of vivid reminders of Christ's work and the ongoing presence with the saints in Asia and reminders that he will return and that in the meantime he is with them in the struggle. The aim of the book of Revelation is one of hope. And this is why so much of the book is actually written in hymn form. It's written as poetry. We can miss that fact because we focus so much on the images that we don't understand or we understand less. We miss the brilliance of the forest of Revelation for looking at the individual trees. We miss the message of Revelation when we focus too much on the individual imagery of the book. There are poems and hymns throughout Revelation, so much so that Revelation is the originator of the majority of the hymnody that we sing today. It's second only to the book of Psalms. We sing more of Revelation than any other book in the Bible, except for the Psalms. Why? Because it was intended to be a book about hope and assurance. Revelation 1, uh, Revelation 1 says, look, he is coming on the clouds. Revelation 4, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Revelation 5, you are worthy, Christ, to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. Verse 19, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign on the earth to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Be praise and honor and glory and power forever. Revelation 7, never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them nor the scorching heat for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to the springs of living water and God will wipe away the tears from their eyes. The book of Revelation is a book of hope and that's just me quoting three chapters out of 22. Can you hear them and, and, and hear how these words to an oppressed and beaten group of believers would stir hope for them? The good Gospel news that the Lamb, not empires, is at the center. That Christ, not the emperor, will lead them. That springs of living water, not the fire of persecution, will be their future. And the tears that they have, those are going to be wiped away. That's the message of Revelation. The aim of Revelation is one of hope in the midst of the sobriety of the hardships of the day. And this is our task. As preachers, as we walk uh, this young church through this book over the next few weeks, and here's the thing. If our preaching of this book doesn't stir up hope in you, then we've not done it right. If we don't preach this book in a way that stirs your affections for Christ, then as much as it depends on us, we've failed. If we preach this book, and so many have, and it leaves you feeling fearful, then we've failed. And if we preach it, and it only stimulates you intellectually or stirs curiosity, though we hope to do that too, then we've missed the mark. Now, um, in my small group last week, uh, and I know we did this in, in service as well, I had folks, I pulled out a big sheet of paper, and I just sort of divided it down the middle, 
and I said, um, okay, on one side, what are your experiences and feelings uh, about us kind of going into this series? And the things that were written <laughs> were things like fear, like in big, you know, with red, like f- confusion. And then somebody just wrote like, what the heck, big, big question mark. And I'm like, eh, I get that. Um, <laughs> You know, uh, because there's a lot of imagery and images in, in Revelation. Um, this, is a, uh, this is a common image that uh, shows up when approaching Revelation. This is a painting on the Sistine Chapel in Vatican City uh, by Michelangelo. It's called Last Judgment, um, which depicts it. And there's, I mean, it's probably hard to see for you there, but it's, I mean, there's like skeletons and like demons in it. Uh, there's dragons and horsemen and battles and beasts and harlots and I mean it's just like there's imagery and that's all referenced in Revelation and then in other parts like there's numbers and numerology and you know a thousand years or 144,000 and other things like and we're going to address some of that we won't address all of it but as we walk through it we want to address some of it and we'll provide additional resources for you to study as we walk through this but the thing that I want all of us to keep in mind is this main point of Revelation one of providing hope to the people of God Throughout it all, it's important for us to ask is, how was this good news? How was this image or this news gospel for the people that heard it, those first churches? And how ought it be good news to me today? How does this stir in me assurance in Christ and his love for me? I want to focus just quickly um, on the opening letter to the seven churches that's in uh, chapters two and three. Um, In particular, I want to pay some attention to the church in Ephesus, which is one of the seven. The book of Revelation is actually organized in a series uh, of visions that the author has as he encounters Christ. And the first series of visions uh, begins when John is directed by Christ to send a message to the seven churches that are in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. The churches are located in seven cities. We covered some of this last week, but seven cities throughout the region. The cities are Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, 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 what's wrong with my tongue, and Laodicea. <laughs> and uh, we're not exactly sure why these seven, um, there were actually other churches in this, in this area, in this region, um, and it's suspected that the book of Revelation was actually circulated to those churches as well, not just the seven mentioned. In chapters uh, 2 and 3, what we find are they're open letters from Christ to these churches. In each of the open letters, they follow a similar pattern. First, there's uh, the introduction um, to the angel or to the leader of the church of whatever given city. And then it says, Jesus says this. Here's the message that's coming. And then after that, um, the letter gives encouragement, and then it gives rebuke. And there's a call to listen. He who has ears, let them hear. And then it ends with a promise. It ends with, uh, listen, this is the victory that's up ahead. And depending on which church the letter is addressed to, there's different amounts of encouragement and rebuke. Um, The letter to the church in Philadelphia, there's a lot of encouragement about Philadelphia's faithfulness to Christ amidst the great hardship and pain. And there's not much rebuke to them, but great heaps of promise uh, about God's plan for them. And in the letter to the church of Laodicea, it's a scathing letter in, in its rebuke. Jesus says in his letter that that church has become lukewarm and God wants to spit them out of his mouth. The letter is short on encouragement, save for the fact that Jesus acknowledges uh, that he's being harsh to them, but that he says, I'm being harsh to you because I want you to return to me. That there's hope for repentance and to return. 
Three of the seven churches, they're dealing with internal conflicts over acceptable and unacceptable forms of Christian faith and practice. For Ephesus, they were dealing with false prophets, and Pergamum, false teachers, and Thyatira, another false prophet. Also at stake was the degree to which uh, Christians could accommodate pagan and non-Christian practices in their worship, which is part of the reason why John may have been exiled in the first place, a resistance to the pagan cultural practices of the day. John will call the churches to live into their distinct Christian identities and to return back to the Lord. Much of the unacceptable teaching that was uh, creeping into the seven churches was from a group called the Nicolaitans that was in the passage uh, that Femke read for us. They were more open to accommodating pagan practices into the life of the church. And the church in Ephesus was, commending, was commended for testing those teachers that were teaching this different way and those who claimed to be apostles. However, the um, unwanted side of their efforts of resisting the sinister forms of assimilation was that they lost the love that they had at first. The Ephesian Christians faced the challenge of pursuing the way of Christian love um, without compromising the integrity of their faith. Each letter, though, it ends with a reminder that because of Christ's faithfulness and the loving response of the church to Christ's love, what results is victory. Christ's victory in the life of the believer, the victory of Christ over the enemy, and the victory of the church over the challenges of the day. In 2.7, he says, the one who is victorious. 2.17, he says, the one who is victorious. 2.26, to the one who is victorious. 3.5, the one who is victorious. 3.12, the one who is victorious. Chapter 3, verse 21, what do you think he says? That's right. And if there's anything that we know from the basics of Bible interpretation, it is this. Pay attention to the things that the Bible repeats. And in this case, it's the cadence that Christ is victorious. Jesus begins his letter to the church in Ephesus, chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you can't tolerate wicked people and that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Jesus begins with a word of encouragement and imagery. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Pretty early we encounter some of Revelation's imagery. We have to explore it a bit. I was talking with Lisa about this. We're trying to figure out what in the world are stars and lampstands. And um, she was sharing with me that uh, she was doing some research. This was a few months, a few weeks back when she was uh, preparing for her sermon on Matthew 5. She did some digging into the imagery of light and darkness. And she was telling me that actually the image of lamp and lampstands is one of the most common images in the Bible throughout the Old Testament and New. And that it means different things at different times, but the common thread is that it represents the presence of God and the presence of His good news. Justin mentioned last week that the number seven in biblical history represented wholeness and completeness. And so Jesus writing to the seven churches is to say that Jesus is writing the letter to all churches. Which means that the things that Christ is saying to these specific churches and in this case to the church in Ephesus, that there's something likewise relevant to our church today. 
the seven stars and the seven lampstands. These are the seven churches that are in uh, keeping with the theme that Christ is articulating throughout Revelation, which means that all churches that follow Jesus, those are the ones to whom he's writing to. Those are the stars. And the passage says that Jesus holds the stars, that he holds the churches in his hands, and that he walks among them. The verb hold, actually, it's a, it's a unique word. It, um, it isn't just that uh, like the churches are like resting in his open palm in hopes that Jesus doesn't stumble and then we fall out. It's actually an active word. It means that he's gripping them. He's grasping them. He's saying, I, church, people of God, the first thing that I want you to know is this, that I'm clinging to you. That you aren't just sitting in my hand. That I'm actively holding you. I'm grasping you. And I'm not going to let you go. But Jesus isn't just gripping his people. The other image is that he's walking among the churches. That he's in our midst. That he's with them. That he's journeying with them. That he's on the move. That he's, that he's wild and free. That he's in and around them. Again, though the churches are encircled with pain and disappointment and uncertainty, this they can know, that God is holding them and that he's with them in their midst. And I suspect there are those, even in this room, even now, who need to be reminded of the words of Revelation, of the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands, who needs to be reminded that God holds you and that he's with you in your midst. Jesus goes on to say, he says, I know your good deeds. I know your deeds and your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you can't tolerate wicked people. Verse 3, that you've persevered and endured hardships for my name, that you've not grown weary. Verse 4, yet this I hold uh, against you. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. Uh, I've been thinking about this passage, frankly, for weeks leading up to this series. Um, our subtitle for the series is beginning with the end in mind. So I've been thinking about our end as Christ City Church. Uh, and, you know, I know maybe that's like a morbid way. Like we just got started, Watson. Like we're six weeks in. You're already thinking about our end. What are you talking about? Um, but I've been thinking about us. I've been thinking about uh, Ephesus. Because the thing is that every church denomination in America is in decline. And the modest yet steady growth that our church has experienced over the past several seasons is actually an anomaly to the vast experience of most churches in the U.S. Most church plants, more church plants fail than succeed. And we're in a new season in the life of our church, and there's tremendous excitement and momentum that we're experiencing both within the life of our body and then even in our neighborhood and in our community. Um, but there's going to come a point where our dreams and our excitements and our, uh, and our plans smash into the brokenness of people and our world. And uh, when we're faced with challenges of the day, will we forsake the love that we had at first? Will we neglect the thing that brought us together in the first place? Our shared love for Christ Jesus. Our passion and passionate pursuit of God's love Will we, will we neglect that? The, the curious and amazing thing about the church in Ephesus was its spiritual history and its context. Ephesus was an urban cosmopolitan city that, was at the cent that had at 
It was just at the center of pagan worship of the goddess of Artemis, and it involved temple prostitution and a corrupt view of the body and a corrupt view of the way that men and women relate to one another. The Ephesian church, though it had actually quite an amazing Christian spiritual history, um, the Apostle Paul founded the church in Ephesus. How would you like that to be your church planting pastor? Um, he held a close relationship with that church throughout his entire life. It, uh, they would be the ones that finally commissioned him to Rome and prayed over him in an incredibly moving and heart-wrenching scene in Acts 20. Because this was the last time that he would be sent out on his missionary journey. He would arrive in Rome. He'd be martyred later. Paul passes leadership of the church to Timothy, who would pastor them. Now, Paul would write two letters to Timothy, First and Second Timothy, guiding him in how he ought to lead the church in Ephesus. Tradition says that Timothy's pastoring would then, he passed the leadership of the church to the Apostle John, who wrote the Gospel of John in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So the church, they had all the resources they needed to start well. And Jesus even commends them, and he says, I know your deeds. You're hard workers. I know that you've tested the claims of those that want to be apostles. I know your theological precision is fantastic. Paul and the Ephesian church, they'd actually end up reaching the majority of uh, the region of Asia Minor. And that's how we know that there were other churches in that region besides just these seven. So even in writing to the seven churches, Jesus is in effect recognizing and, and, and acknowledging the church's missionary zeal for the area. And he's saying, I see all that you've done and good on you guys. That's great. And yet, Despite having Paul and Timothy and John in their leadership history, despite their theological precision and their missionary zeal, 40 years later, when Revelation is written, 40 years later, Jesus says, yet I hold this against you, you've forsaken your first love. The church had begun to neglect the thing that mattered most, their love for God and God's love for them. In Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, the church with the same name, the book of Ephesians, Paul would say this to them in chapter 2, verse 4, but because of his, God's great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. Verse 6, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenlies, in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Paul is reminding them that God gives love for your brokenness, that he makes you alive, that he gives you a new name, and he gives you a seat at the table. There was a season where the church in Ephesus, and I suspect a time in so many of our lives, where we were swept up in this love of God. Maybe when we first came to faith in Christ or, or in a season of our lives where we just walked really closely with Jesus and we were stunned by the wonder of the gospel. Seasons where we just, where we just simply marinated in the beauty of Jesus and in our relationship with him because of his great love for us. What was produced was our great love for him. But the thing is, we can forget what it's like to be passionate for Christ. Pastor John Tyson uh, in Pastor's Church in New York City, he says, when a relationship begins to die, the things the relationship produces take the place of why the relationship was founded. When relationships begin to die, the things the relationship produces begin to take the place of why the relationship was founded. Lisa and I, we were married 16 years ago. And uh, when we first met, man, she was, you know, 
she just, she couldn't think of anything other than me, which <laughs> could blame her. I mean, we were just drunk in love. You know, we loved each other, and we didn't have anything but passion for each other and for the Lord. Our first apartment we moved into, we left San Francisco, moved to Fresno. We didn't have a bed. We were sleeping on, like, pallets. One of my coworkers found out, and they were like, you guys don't have a bed? You just got married? We're like, yeah, we're sleeping on a blanket on the floor. But praise God. And they're like, we need to get these guys. They don't, <laughs> they don't have. We had a little table. It sat two chairs. We had a TV that sat on the ground and a blanket. <laughs> we didn't have anything. Now, <laughs> our lives was filled with so much stuff that, the, that, the love, that our love has produced. It's filled with kids and houses and cars and a church. And, I mean, because of the love that's, that God has placed in us for one another and for Him. But the thing is, if we're not careful, then our relationship, our love for one another can wither and we can just turn our attention and affection to the things that that love has produced and forget the reason why we fell in love in the first place. And I think the temptation for us, Christ City Church, is the same. Is that we substitute our initial love for Jesus for the things that our love for Jesus has produced, even in our church. Our shared love for Christ has produced rich community here. Our love for Christ has birthed in us a passion for God's word and a passion and ache for God's justice. It's produced favor and impact in our city, all of which are good and beautiful and God-honoring. And at the same time, it can cause our gaze to drift away from our first love, from Christ and Jesus doesn't tell us, so, hey, you've neglected your first love, so work harder, love harder. That's not his invitation. He actually says, work less. Rest in me. Be reminded that I loved you first and loved you most. The great aim of the Christian life isn't to work harder or love harder, but to rest and abide in Christ's love for us. That's the invitation. And he calls us to return to him, to love him, to rest in him, and to recognize that it is not our grasp of him, but it is his grasp of us as he lives and moves among us. Let us begin with the end in mind, and let us not lose our gaze of our first love. Will you pray with me?